I am. Um, okay. I guess we're ready to start. All right. Um, hi, David. Hi, Charmaine. You're there. I can't see you guys. But Good morning. Hi. Um, David, could you just click on your video and let me see? It just might not be working at all. If one person's video isn't working, the rest of it might not work. But if you could just click on and off your video just for one second. I've done that. It's not working. Oh, Okay. Ah, I see David. Yay. Okay. Why you don't see me? I don't know. Can you see me, David? I cannot. And what did you just do? I just clicked my video on and off. Okay, I'm going to click my video off. Off and off. We'll uh, lift the veil for the listening audience here at MutinyRadio.fm. You're listening to the inaugural uh, taping, podcasting of Conversations on Race. Everyday Conversations on Race with Sima Lieberman. Just letting you guys lift in the veil. She's got an amazing show. She has disparate people, people of different ethnic backgrounds and colors and races are going to have conversations about race and bringing you that information. Everybody, Sima Lieberman, yay! Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together from different cultures and different backgrounds to have comfortable conversations about race and show people that we can have those conversations. If you've ever wanted to have a conversation about race, but were afraid of saying the wrong thing, or you are afraid of not being heard, then this podcast is for you. Listen up. Today, I have two really great guests. I have David Casey and Charmaine McClary, and I'm going to read you their bios, and then I'm going to have them tell you a little bit about themselves. So first, we'll start with David. David has served as a chief diversity officer for two Fortune 30 companies, positioning them both as top companies in the country for strategic diversity management. In these roles, he's had responsibility for developing and driving diversity management strategies and workplace culture shaping and integration during mergers and acquisitions and workforce development strategies throughout the United States, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and Brazil. David has also been and is a national keynote speaker and an executive coach for more than 16 years. David likes to say that he always enjoys the opportunity to meet new people, learn about new organizations and communities, and to discuss topics that matter most to our professional and personal lives. David has served as an advisor and or on the board of directors of numerous organizations, including the American Lung Association, the American Society on Aging, the United States Secretary of Labor Advisory Council, the Greater Providence Chamber of Commerce, Year Up, the Urban League, and the Indianapolis Urban League. And to, to go further with David's credentials, he also serves on the advisory boards for the Human Capital Executive Research Board, the I4CP Chief Diversity Officer Board, and the National Association of African Americans in Human Resources. He's been published or cited in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Atlantic, Diversity Inc. Magazine, Drugstore News, Profiles in Diversity, Diversity Global, and Diversity Executive. And he's appeared on the television series American Profiles. 
David holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration from Indiana Wesleyan University and is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, where he served for eight years, including Operation Desert Storm. So good to have you on this show, finally, David. And it's so good to be here. Thank and, you. And my next guest is a very good and very dear friend and colleague of mine, Charmaine McCleary, who I've been trying to get on this show forever. Charmaine McCleary is a C-suite advisor, keynote speaker, executive coach, and executive presence authority who helps leaders have their best year ever. She's worked with leaders in 27 industries across five continents. Her clients include top executives from Coca-Cola, Gilead Sciences, Humana, Johnson & Johnson, MasterCard, Starbucks, and T-Mobile. For more than two decades, 98% of Charmaine's clients are promoted within 18 months. For CEOs, that might mean a promotion to corporate directorship. For other senior leaders, that might mean a promotion from SVP to EVP or even CEO. Charmaine works predominantly with C-suite leaders and executives with demonstrated readiness to be in the C-suite, coaching them on leadership, acumen, communication ability, and executive presence. Charmaine's work has been profiled in People, Forbes, Harvard Management Update, the London Times, and the New York Times. She's on the faculty as a leadership and communications expert at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Block School of Management, EMBA program, and is a visiting lecturer at the Smith Smith College Executive Education Program. So you can see people who are listening, we have two very, very distinguished guests on our program. So, uh, David and Charmaine, I'm going to ask both of you if there's anything else you'd like people to know about you, and also if you could describe yourself in demographics, because people cannot see you. So, let's start with you, David. I'll let Charmaine go first, ladies first. Oh, my God, we have chauvinism happening, but okay. Charmaine is interesting. Let's hear Charmaine first. Um, so a description of myself, I'm located in Los Angeles. I've been practicing for, I'd say, over two decades. And I say that because I like to stop at a certain number and um, love what I do. And when you say description, Simba, why don't you ask me some additional questions so that I make sure that I'm really giving my audience what they want and what they need in order to know who I am. Okay. Well, let's see. Would you are you a millennial, a baby boomer, an ex? I mean, and you, and, Approximately, what generation are you? Uh, I would say I'm, I, I'm, I'm definitely not a millennial. I am a baby boomer, uh, or say at the beginning of the baby boom, and, or say the end of the baby boom, and uh, an African-American female who's, as I said, been in this industry for over two decades, uh, working in this industry when we were not called coaches. Okay. Actually, when I didn't see people that looked like me or sounded like me. Thank you. And David... So yes, I uh, I am a, a Gen Xer, and uh, I also uh, am African American. I did my 23 several years ago. So if you believe in the results of those tests, I'm 84% African, 13.7% European, and the rest is a mix of Asian and some other things. So, but I do identify as African American. Um, I am a six foot three. Uh, married, live in the Midwest, as you mentioned, a veteran. So I identify across all those lines. Uh, but that's just a little, a little additional detail about how I identify who I am. 
Yeah, thank you, because of course we want people to understand that nobody is just one identity. We're all a mixture of different identities, and different identities take precedence at different times. So since this is Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, I'm going to ask both of you, why is it important to talk about race And why is it important to you personally? And please feel free to share any stories you would like. So who would like to go first? Because remember, this is a convo. So I can call on people. All right, let's start with Charmaine. And then we'll we'll start with Charmaine and then David. And then next time, David will go first. Okay, Charmaine. Um, you know, something that was interesting that you said, David, was about 23andMe because just recently I participated in the 23andMe because uh, I've been curious and want my brother to participate in this. And what was interesting about my background, because I think for many African-Americans, we've been told that we have Native American, like every African-American says, oh, my grandmother who had hair down to her waist, she was African, she was a Native American. And what was interesting for me is, is that part of my mix, again, if you believe the 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 information was Asian and Irish. So my family comes from the Congo, um, but there is a uh, 15% of uh, Ireland, and there was a um, 10%, I believe it was, of Asian in my background. So again, we come to the table with a varied background because we are not mono, you know, we're not monolithic in, all across the board. Um, so why is it important to talk about race? I think it's important to speak about race because we is because it is core and essential, I think, to this country and how we address uh, problems, how we identify solutions, and if we are, if we were like a company, if we we're like Procter Gamble, we think about. Who's the demographic that we want to address? And when we think about this quote unquote melting pot of this country, race is an important component of that. And I think that when we bring that conversation up, when we raise that issue of race, then it allows us to have a deeper, richer conversation. And when we avoid it, how we can how we continue to have conflict because we're not understanding the depth and the breadth of our fellow um, humans particularly in the United States. Yes, Charmaine, I'll add to that, uh, to to Simba's question. You know, uh, if you believe in the science, and I say if, because not everybody does, but if you believe in the science behind 23andMe and some of of the other similar genetic testing that's out there, and and you look at mitochondrial DNA, I learned more about mitochondrial DNA than I ever thought I'd know or, or want to know. But if you believe in that, um, then you'll then you'll believe that while race doesn't have any biological validity, there's no one gene that any one group across that entire group. It has an extremely real historical and societal construct in the in, in the Western Hemisphere anyway, especially here in the United States. So similar to your question about why it's important, um, I, I think it's somewhere. You know, I remember getting into this work and. and at the time, you know, there was a prevalent thought that, you know, being colorblind was a good thing, you know, and I would have people tell me all the time, David, when I see you, I don't see race, I don't see a person of color. And, you know, my response to that would be is how unfortunate is that? Because when I I see it every day, when I look in the mirror, you know, when I shave, you know, um, 
And quite frankly, I'm, I'm proud of my heritage. You know, why can't, why, why does everybody else get to be proud of their heritage? But, you know, African Americans couldn't be proud of their heritage. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at race. What I think we have to be careful of is making assumptions based on things we don't know. It's okay for you to see me as an African American, but don't start making too many assumptions about what you do. You get to know me. Well, I, you know, I really like what you, I really like what you have to say about that. Um, I think that the whole colorblind thing, I get really annoyed when people say that. And now what I've started saying to people was, is, you know, I know you mean really well, and I know that you're trying to say that uh, you don't judge people based on color or whatever, but when you say that you're colorblind, you really are erasing people. And you're also saying that right. that it's bad. That I mean, and I always say this, and, and I, I'll always say that I tell people, if if you're colorblind, then how will you know what sweater to get somebody for their birthday? You won't know what look what looks good on you know on their skin color. You, you know, there's something that you said, uh, David. It was about um, that as African Americans, I just want to make sure I get this right: that we haven't been allowed to feel good about our heritage when we think about uh, color in this country. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think color, culture, and ethnicity, Charmaine, you know, because I think about, you know, we, we celebrate uh, Italian-American heritage. You know, we celebrate Italian-American festivals, Irish-American. Uh, we celebrate, you know, Asian-American festivals. But, you know, when things crop up and, and, and you start using terms like bright, black pride and, and, you know, we talk about celebrating our, our culture, you know, people see that as some many people, I won't say all, because that certainly wouldn't be accurate, see that as somehow or the other being somewhat radical or, or being militant. And, and I think it's because of our country's history. We have never effectively dealt with the conversation on race. So I, I agree with you there. And, I, and, and the reason why I'm on that is because when we say, when we think about being American um, in this country, what has the... the Defunct de facto is we've been excluded from what being an American is or being very monolithic in terms of what it means to be um, of color of African-American. And so mm-hmm. when someone says, oh, we're color, I'm colorblind, that until we have an understanding about what it means to be an African-American, Americans are part of this culture and have always been a part of this culture, that until we em- until we examine that, we are excluding a very important and valuable part of our culture, which doesn't allow mm-hmm. us, as we say, to, when we say, well, it's an American culture, well, what does it mean to be American? Mm-hmm. And if we, pull, if we pull that apart, um, peel the onion um, back, is that it's very rich, but again, the, when, that's, when someone says, well, you know, you should be proud to be an American, our history shows that we have been excluded from that conversation or excluded from a part of that heritage. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is one of the reasons why we are so grappling with race because we don't, um, we've not want to look at the, say the bad, the good and the ugly of the conversation of, about race so that mm-hmm. we can, as you said, if there's Italian American, Asian American, um, Native American celebration, um, that because the 
of the enslavement that that history of African Americans has been um, one that we don't want. That we don't want to. We don't want the pain or the ugliness of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and. And, and, you know, you, you think people I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, slavery was so long ago. You know, why can't we just get over it? And obviously slavery in the African-American or, or black experience in America. And, and when I hear people say that was so long ago, why don't we just get over it? Uh, you know, Simon and Charmaine, I'll share with you very quickly, if you'll if you'll indulge me. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife did a uh, Christmas present. And she did some genealogical research on my family's history and traced our family's um, traced our family's history back to the I want to say the 1820s. And you know, so the- theoretically and, and philosophically, slavery we talked about it. You know that I, I certainly could connect to it, and and you know the atrocities that happened. You know during slavery, I watched Roots, and you know when it first came out, and and that that really wasn't an awakening for me as a younger person. But, you know, to my family's names and birth records and death records and slave ownership records on paper, to see that on paper, to see that in a book, you know, this is going to sound somewhat cliche, so I apologize for that. But it's the honest, I could hear their voices. You wow. know, and, and it really hit me, even though we've studied slavery and talked about it, now seeing my family's names on paper, knowing their history, I just felt that, you know, I have slaves coursing through my veins. Mm-hmm. So when people say we shouldn't talk about race, it doesn't matter. How do you ignore that? And, and, and you know, I don't wake up every day just, just wanting to go out and destroy something or angry about it. But how do you ignore that part of your history whenever, you, you know, how, when everybody else gets to celebrate everything that was a part of their history? You know, and another, but another, another, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say another issue too for me when people say that is who determines what people can talk about? Who determines what people consider in history and in life? Do we not talk in schools about, um, about the American Revolution? So, you know, go ahead. When you say that, there's two things I wanted to say, one to David and and as well to the general question that is essential to one's success is really being very clear about what your narrative is. And when we have definition and dominion over our narrative, we have power. And we are empowered about who we are and the fullness of who we are. And you can represent all of that in the world in a way that, that you can be very proud um, and, um, and understand the value that you bring to the table. And so I am a believer that if you do not define yourself, others will, and their definition will inevitably be inadequate. So when I'm working with a client, regardless of who they are, I always, the first thing that we begin with is, who are you? How do you see yourself and how do you want the world to see you? So how do you see yourself? How do other people see you? But how do you want to be seen? And really getting clarity, and that's me working with leaders from the top to the bottom of an organization. Once we get, once we have that narrative, we are empowered and emboldened to really show up as our full self because you can't be your best self if you don't know who you are. 
if you can't bring that to the table in a way that um, allows you to, for you to see yourself as a peer and a person of value and a person that has a contribution to make. And then I'm going to go back to something you said about your wife and her genealogy, incredible surprise uh, birthday gift. I had the pleasure of um, spending quite a bit of time on the continent and I was taking young people. And part of my family comes from, on my father's side, comes from Benin. I didn't know this at the time, but when our pl my plane landed in Benin, and I was on my way to, to Ghana, but landed in Benin, get on the aircraft, I began to weep. And I wept because I saw my grandfather and my grandfather's father. And that's what, and, and I, that's one of the things that made me really curious about sort of where we, but it was that power of understanding another part of myself a part that I'd not seen and a part that I'd never experienced on that in that very visceral way. Mm. That's so powerful. I'll just, if I can add to that, you know, when, when my wife, uh, or going back to the, the election of President Barack Obama, and you know, this, 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 what I'm about to say, any notion of partisanship. So regardless of your political party, and some people may say that's not right, or they may disagree with with the perspective on it, but the party, when he got elected, I cried. And the reason I cried is that my parents and, and all of my uh, grandparents uh, don't have any surviving grandparents anymore, and both of my parents have passed away. They didn't live long enough to see that election. Knowing the, the history of, of uh, you know, my my ancestors' experience and, and my lineage, just knowing that they, they got they, they passed away, never believing that a moment like that could ever happen in this country. My father was six, and as a black man being born in 1926 in America, he this this country gave him very few reasons um, to, to be proud of it and to like it, but he did. He was extremely proud of, of uh, being an African American. Um, you know, he served in the military as well and was extremely proud of it. But, you know, that's where this connection comes into play, that we have to make it okay for people to have those kinds of identities and, and, to, to, and to form that narrative talking about. You know, I cried because, not because I was a Democrat and my presidential candidate won, I cried because I knew of the pain and suffering that so many, uh, you know, so many people before me had, had gone through and had never once even dreamed that something like that could ever happen in this country. That's pretty powerful. And I had so many, um, you know, Republican friends, independents, who already was, who didn't vote for Obama, you know, who, who tried to deny me that, that, that moment of, of cultural pride, that, that moment of ancestral pride. And that really challenged some of my relationships and friendships with people. Because for me, at that point, it wasn't about who. It was about you denying me a part of what Charmaine just spoke to, being able to, to, to shape my narrative and my own identity, quite frankly. Well, I have a question for both of you. You both have, you know, looking at your histories, you're both very conscious of who you are and of the world around you. And you've both reached the very, very high levels in corporate America. As African-Americans, what challenges have you had 
as you keep as you keep getting higher and higher and higher because i think that a lot of people have that question particularly young people of color have that question of what's going to happen to me what do i need to know as i as as i as i keep going so can you can you talk to that can both of you talk to that yeah charmaine i can start um you know and and given bio you know, I appreciate you saying that I've, I've reached, you know, some pinnacle of success, uh, Sima, but given her bio, I'm going to have to connect with her and send her my resume afterwards, I think. Well, I hope I, so. I can certainly <laughs> use some of her. <laughs> She's the best. So, uh, I'll say, you know, I, I certainly, uh, look, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I, I would say, you know, in my 20s, earlier in my career, I was not as comfortable in my own skin from a cultural, racial, ethnic identity background. I, I just wasn't, you know, I, I think at that point, I probably tried to do more to assimilate and, and just fit in than to really do anything that would identify me as being separate and apart from the, the, the larger group. And, and I'll tell you what, you know, here in 2018 to this day, still in many cases in, a, in professional settings and also social, social settings, in a lot of cases, I walk into the room and I'm still the only one who looks like me or one of a few. And I tell people all the time that you've got about five seconds to that. Is everybody in the room gonna think that you're there to speak on behalf of all African-Americans or black Americans? Um, and are they gonna take everything as you say is representing the entire group? You know, so I, I think for me, I've gotten more comfortable, you know, identifying myself, you know, from a race and ethnicity standpoint and being comfortable explaining to my professional peers why that's important, why it matters, and quite frankly, why it adds value to my professional uh, perspective and then also our personal friendships. I'm a lot more comfortable now at the age of 50 than I was earlier in my career. So I guess the one thing I would I would just advise individuals who are earlier in their career is to, you know, don't don't waste time getting comfortable, you know, be comfortable in that there is it, it is a it is a benefit, not a deficit, you know, to, to your who you are as a professional. I really wish that I had been more comfortable in my skin from that perspective earlier in my career. Do you have any specific examples of anything that that happens or anything that you wish you had done or hadn't done or? Anything you know, I would just say, uh, I would just say, I'll give you a, one example. You know, we talk about a lot about the police shootings of unarmed uh, people of color and African Americans and young black men in particular, and that's this been around for a long time. What is new is that a lot more of it's being captured on uh, on iPhones and other devices and being shared in social media news. So you know, the, when the, when those types of things happen in my community uh, and in communities around me earlier in my career, I was not as comfortable having conversations about how that impacted me personally and maybe even professionally with my people doing that now. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll share with you very quickly, um, you know, when, when Tamir Rice was shot, and I think your listeners are probably very familiar with that, you know, a 14-year-old kid in Cleveland, police pulled up a foot away from him, offered or issued no commands, jumped out of the car, shot him, you know, he was BB gun in the park. You know, after the Tamir Rice shooting happened, I reached out to one of my professional colleagues and I said, you know, I'm just going to need you to understand my head's going to be a little foggy on Monday morning. I'm probably not going to be completely there. As a matter of fact, I may even just take the morning off because I need to reconcile what I just saw on video. 
you know, because I am that young man. I was that young man. My, my, my sons could be that young man. Um, so, you know, I don't think that I would have been as comfortable, you know, sharing how something like that could impact me on a personal professional level earlier in my career as I am now. Uh, but I, I kind of wish I had been because I think I suppressed a lot of that earlier in my career me or hindered me from forming some really meaningful relationships in ways that I've been able to now. Thank you. Charmaine. Um, I want to say candor on that because um, I can say for me that in the early part of my career, I was never, I was not as comfortable with my narrative. Of course, as I told my husband when I met him, I said, just so that we're clear, I said, I'm gonna wake up black, I'm gonna die black. I said, so <laughs> if you're dealing with somebody else, you need to guess again. Um, but I think it's, there are a couple of things that are really important about this. When you said about many times you are the only one, the only uh, African-American when you walk into a room. That was the case for me 27 years ago when I began my practice. That is the case for me many times today. So unfortunately, those numbers have not increased significantly. There is real power when you walk into a room and someone looks like you. It's sort of like being handed the baton that not, only, that not only are you okay, but this is what success can look like. And when you don't have that, there is a, um, an arrested, there can be an arrested development because you don't know what it looks like. You don't know what, what it feels like. And you don't necessarily have, you may be the first person in your family for many people to have gone to college and so, or to be in a professional setting. So who do you ask? And until we began to sort of have that dialogue about what, it, what, your, what our concerns are, I think that we can very much have an arrested development in terms of having that comfort with all of who we are. Um, which is why I would say that one of the things that I ask my clients to do, and I, I did this for myself, which is what made the difference, is really asking people that looked like me and that didn't look like me, what is it that I don't know that I need to know? And what have been the secrets for your success? And then I always ask the question about what's the barrier? Meaning, if, you know, based on what you know about me, what do you feel that might be some barriers or things that, that are assumptions that people may make about me before, I, before they know who I am? And I ask people for their candor and I don't penalize them for being candid. And I did that very early on in my career and it made a significant difference in terms of people being prepared to make introductions for me and on my behalf so that I met people in very powerful and senior level positions because I put myself out there. Yeah, and I, I also... I was, I, go ahead. Let me say this. I was, I was very... I was, I was um, comfortable with my narrative, knowing I needed to expand my narrative, that if I walked in... I, I knew early on that if I walked in the room, that every time I walked in the room and wasn't willing or, um, or prepared to embrace my, um, my blackness, that I was walking into the room as a, with a deficit. That until I was able to do that, that that was one of the most that was one of the very powerful components of my of, of me really feeling very empowered and really understanding who I was in the room, because if not, I was denying a part of myself that um, brings me so much strength. 
And so I think as we begin to begin peel back that onion and looking at what are the contributions that not only have people of color, African-Americans made, but what are the things that have, what are the things that I would see in my grandmother or my grandfather that allowed them to have, to live a good life? And I don't mean that necessarily corporate experience, but a good life. Like I got my work ethic from my grandmother. Um, my uh, my resiliency and so looking at what those qualities are um, that are um, just basic to our humanity really made looking at that and giving that the full its full weight as if they had an MBA and not feeling that that was any that that was going to be a deficit because they didn't have an MBA and I can't say that they came from Princeton but the fact that they were able to live a good life and to persevere speaks so much speaks volumes of who I am as a person and what my lineage is. Um, and then I'll also say about um, one of the things that I ask people when I'm meeting them and I see what is particularly with my early part of my career, what I call the three seconds of surprise when they've spoken to you on the telephone and then they meet you face to face. I'm like, oh, that was pre LinkedIn. So let me, I'm dating myself. That was pre LinkedIn. <laughs> I would not have my first name on my card. And um, because of my last name, many times in my voice is deep on the phone, people would think that actually I was a man. But I would you know, go in as that, you know, I don't want them to know very much about me until they meet me, is um, I would actually, I, would, I was always one that would just be very upfront and say, so what was it? In, in the meeting, I kept seeing the surprise on them. I said, so what's your concern? What is it that you want as an outcome from this? Um, what are you looking for? And then what do you think is going to be different? And then what, so we address that up front. Because at the end of the day, what the person is looking for is a level of success. And if that's what you really want, let's talk about what those components are so that it makes it very easy for you to have comfort with me. Or in fact, that you don't. As I tell people, I'm not everybody's coach, and uh, I know what I do really well, and it doesn't work for everyone, and I'm really and I'm okay with that. So let's make informed decisions about how we decide to proceed, or not. Well, and that comfort, I think, gives other people comfort. <laughs> but I'm one question I have for both of you too. Have either of you had experiences, and I would be surprised if you did not of people underestimating you based on their biases and their assumptions? You know, I, I don't know that um, no one has come out and, and said that they underestimated me, but I'm sure it happens all the time. You know, I was kind of laughing at what Charmaine said. I think one of the ways that shows up is um, so often, if I had a nickel, for every time somebody said to me, once they met me in person as well, uh, because, you know, folks do go out there and take a look at your profile now. But uh, back back in the day, if I had a nickel for every time someone said to me when they, oh, wow, I didn't realize you were black or African-American, I, I'd be a billionaire by now. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that they've kind of expressed, you know, that eyes um, and some ability that I had and being able to articulate, you know, well, or, or, or speak, you know, the Queen's English or whatever it may be. But I, I don't know that anyone has come out and blatantly 
you know, shown shock or surprise in my abilities to work hard because I've never given them that opportunity. And it goes back to, you know, as African-Americans and black Americans, you know, we are taught from a very early age that you are going to have to outperform your peers because people are going to assume, um, you know, with you coming into the environment that you're not going to be on, on, on an even, on a level playing field. So, you know, I'll, I'll let Charmaine weigh in on her experiences, but I can't say that I can point back to any one specific example of where uh, someone has shown surprise in my ability to perform other than, you know, people articulating to me quite frequently that, oh, you're so articulate as if they didn't expect me to be, or quite frankly, that they were shocked that I'm black or African-American because I didn't speak uh, however they, they expected blacks or African-Americans to speak. Well, because I was, I, I, one, of, one of my clients who's African-American is a woman, and one of her issues and I'd like to know what you, what advice would either of you give to her is as she's moving up, the higher she goes, she said that she often feels like people who are not black, particularly people who are white, um, are condescending towards her as though they can't, don't see her as the intelligent person that she is. It's like they can't believe she's that intelligent, so therefore they have to be condescending. So what what advice would either of you give to that to that woman? It, it, it's interesting when she said that she's is she making an assumption that people are underestimating I don't her ability? She, are they saying it's it's actually what what they say to her. Oh are you sure you want to reach that level? Oh, are you sure you want to be, I can't remember what she wants to be, um, chief, I think it's like chief accounting officer. Are, are you sure that that's where you want to be? Wouldn't you rather be in HR? So what would you, what advice would you give? When people ask questions like that, I think what's really important is to ask them the question. And the question would be? The question could be simply as, where do you see me? And why do you see me at, at that level? Mm. And what do you think? And if, and, if, and if you wanted to be chief financial officer, what, would, what experiences do you feel that I would, you would need to have in order to be there? And what is the gap? I mean, like, you know, because I want you to partner with me so that I can become your chief financial officer. So what experiences and how are we going to partner together to make sure that that comes to fruition? Okay. My thing is, is, all, is, is really asking back, clarify, why do you see me as the head of HR instead of CFO? Not from a defensiveness, but you know, I'm really curious as to why you see me in HR as opposed to, to officer. As you know, I not only am I a CPA and an MBA, but my experience has lent itself for me to be able to do that. So help me to understand why you'd like why you see me there and then if you were to see me as the CFO what do you do in order to make that happen okay yeah I like that Charmaine and and I would be curious to to know depending on who's asking the question what their motivations might be you know I think some of that could be uh is equally tied to her gender uh just as it may be her her race or ethnicity uh, you know, and it could be if, if it's other women asking her that question or giving her that guidance, 
it could be a matter of, um, you know, them having fallen victims to self-fulfilling prophecies of not seeing people who look like them at those levels and believing who identify uh, the same way they do will never attain those levels. If it's, uh, you know, men asking those questions, I think there's probably a whole different set of motivations for where those questions may come from. You know, I would say, you know, my, my advice to her, I don't really have much more to add, but I would just say I have never spent, and maybe maybe I, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to, I'm at a point in my, in my career now, there are too many more upward aspirations I have. I mean, I'm doing the work that I love yeah. to do. I know this is the work that I want to do until I can't work anymore. So I'm there. So I want to be cognizant of people who may be earlier in their careers who don't have that luxury of being in that comfort zone. But I would just say what I do now is I don't spend a lot of time worrying about what others think I can do. I spend more time letting my actions words. It's very hard to, to, uh, um, um, it's, it's very hard to, to push back against or to discount result we can speculate about what somebody can or can't do all day long but if we if the results are there and they speak for themselves that's very hard to push back against yes excellent advice david there are two things that i would add to this is um one is that you can have you can um work hard and i say hard work without a witness is simply hard and who the hell needs that but who are your advocates and yeah. so you can work hard but it's really important, as I say, is that it's not always your it's not your work alone that gets you that upward mobility or that next opportunity or responsibility is having other people sing that song about you mm-hmm. and about what you do. Because we know, I should say, historically, we can say that, yes, we have, you know, um, I need no, I need to come in an hour earlier or whatever that I need to work. Uh, not smart. And part of that working smart is to have advocates and other people that are singing my singing that person's praise so that you're not the only one that's doing it. And that is vitally important, particularly the higher up you go within an organization, because it's not just your delivery, but it's not working with you and how other people, again, are singing the praise about the work that you do and the quality of the work that you do. And then there was one other thing I was going to say is if someone has a limited view about who you are, again, your self-narrative is so important about how you define yourself and really believing that. And the other thing is, is that, for example, with a 360, one of the questions I always ask someone is, are you willing to see that person differently? So if I'm that woman, if somebody says, well, you know, I only see you as a head of HR, then I would ask them, are you willing to see me differently? Mm, yeah. And what would it take for you to do And what would it take for you to do that? So for both of you, who have been your advocates? I mean, how, especially when you're dealing with early on, even when you're like the only African-American person, the only black person in the room as you're, as you're moving in the circles, you're moving in for, for um, work, who, how, what kind of support have you had and what would you kind of support would you advise other people to get who are in similar situations? Yeah, so I'll jump in there. Yeah, you know, I, jump uh, in. So, so I've been a chief diversity officer, as, as similar as you mentioned in the bio. I've been in two Fortune 30 companies now uh, over this, the course of my career. Now, I was fortunate when I got into this work that I had the ability to meet the CEOs of those organizations during the interview process, uh, even though neither one of the roles reported directly to the uh, So to me, that spoke volumes that 
the organizations were serious about diversity, they may not have had 100% certainty of what they even knew they wanted from the role on me to, to kind of craft and design that over the years, which I've appreciated. But but I had the ability to meet with the CEOs of those organizations. Um, during the interview process, one of the things that I knew was going to be critical and, and important because none of those CEOs looked like me, uh, didn't share the same code, and, and I was I was being brought in basically to let them know they had to get better at this, that they they were failing uh, in this space, and and I had to be about um, you know to to you know Charmaine's point, how people saw me, and 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 I had to build trust. So I spent a lot of time in the interview process before I even got the job, building trust with those that I knew I was going to have to work with and, and get the buy-in to, to what I was trying to help them accomplish. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate in my career as a chief diversity officer to have been able to build a level of trust with uh, the CEOs of the York work. And uh, for me, having them as uh, sponsors and champions of the work has been absolutely phenomenal. Then I'll take one more, um, I'll add one of that, uh, because while I think senior leadership buy-in is important, that's not really where all the work always gets done. So I've always tried to be, um, I, I've tried to be as equally focused and balanced on, um, you know, middle management where everything tends to converge and, and then the weight of the organization tends to sit on the shoulders of middle managers. And the, the work that I do, accessible to frontline colleagues as well so that they could see themselves because they could see the with them you know for them what's in it for them benefit them and quite frankly how can they get engaged so i think it's important Sema, to, to think about a lot of people focus on how do i get a sponsor how someone to support me who's at a level higher than me or maybe in a position of power i do think that's critically important but i think you have to focus on where can you build allies and across the entire organization. Thank you. Charmaine. David, that's excellent. I absolutely agree because people will say, oh, well, so-and-so manages really well up, but the area that is critical is, you know, sideways and down, um, that triangulation. And one of the reasons that the peer um, support is so important is because that is where there's the most ambiguity of power. We know who's who, who's senior to us, but when you think we think side, that's again where there's the ambiguity, and people are trying to figure out how can they slice and dice that pie, and that's an area that is absolutely critical to one's not only upward trajectory, but also just your ability to be successful, whether you want to move up or not. Having that support or having an understanding of what are the pain points in which you can be of service with on the peer level and all the way down to the, to, uh, down through the organization. And I learned that one early um, when I was in corporate. This is one of my very first corporate roles. And this is when we had a, I can't believe I'm going to say this, had a typing pool. Um, uh, I had great relationships on a senior level. And what I was finding is that, let's say, let me say this uh, to, uh, my father told me that he didn't want me to be a secretary, and so I got a C minus in typing. So I always had to pay somebody to type my, my term. Um, I'm at a deficit on my, with my computer. So I would take something in to have it typed, and I thought I was being very polite, and it would 
just was never making it up to the top. And I thought, what is, you know, this is ridiculous. And what I didn't understand, and I learned very quickly, is that uh, I remember the woman's name was Tilda. It was staying at the bottom of Tilda's basket when she decided to um, hand out the work because I had not created that relationship. When I knew who her granddaughter was, when I was able to have conversation with her, that was very genuine. Because mm -hmm. I wanted to know her, everything changed. I mean, like my things went to the top of the list, but I had forgotten something that was critical, not only in corporate. Mm -hmm. Everyone That's has value, everyone is important, and you want to know what you want to know their story. When you understand their story, you and to hear you in a different way. Well, I would see you differently and hear you differently. So that's very important. And in my career, I have uh, I have asked people um, to sponsor me, or may not even ask them direct, but I I have identified where I felt that they were really strong, and asked them like. I met a gentleman with numbers, and I said, you are brilliant in telling a story with numbers. I want to learn that skill, because I want to be able to do that. When people understand that you can see, their, you can see what they do really well, it allows them an opportunity to get to know you. Because mine wasn't that I so much wanted to be a mathematician, you know, wanted to be brilliant with numbers, but, I, but part of our relationship was him understanding how do I ask questions I ask? And again, that created a different level of relationship. So I think that um, that helps not only with sponsorship and following and just communion in your community at work. Mm -hmm. Well, I. And so I, can I add yeah, something? Go about ahead. That? Go ahead no. and add. Add, please. You know, let's, let's, let's keep it real here. <laughs> In, in a lot of cases where, you know, again, you know, we're talking about race here and a lot of cases where professionals of color are looking for mentors and sponsors. In many cases, if you're looking for those people who do have the power to pull you up and across an organization, you know, again, let's just look at the stats, right? Less than 5% of C-level jobs in Fortune 500 companies are filled by women and people of color. So the chances are you're going to you're going to have a mentor and a sponsor or at least one who's not going to look like you. And one of the ways that, that I've tried to build trust as well is to get them to understand that as a black American and African, even I don't get it all right all the time. One of the stories I love to share, and I'll tell it quickly, is that I was having a discussion with a professional peer and uh, a six African American man. We were talking about where we went to school and, um, he told me he went to like a mid-level college. And I said, well, what was it like to play basketball there? And basketball there. He said, I, I'm not a good athlete. I've never been able to play basketball. Why did you assume I played basketball? <laughs> and because with me growing up as a kid, if you were 6'8", and you looked like me, and you went to college, you played ball, right? So so I, I, I shared that story with a lot of folks that I'm trying to build a relationship with not to, 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 to let them off the hook for any things they may not be getting right, but also to let them know that nobody gets it right all the time. So, you know, for, for people looking to how do I build relationships and, and, and create a, um, a, a level of trust and, and, and buy-in 
from people who don't look like me, I think, quite frankly, you have to be open and honest about the fact that none of us gets it right all the time. I think you're right. I think, that, and that's one of the reasons why I have this show, because I want to show people that yes, we all make mistakes. We don't always get it right, but we can learn. And every time we take a risk, we could learn. And it also means that somebody has to be there also, like pulling our coat, you know, and saying, hey, why did you think that I would play basketball? Or, or, any other, or any other kind of teaching moment. And I'm looking at the time, and I could listen to you, and I could talk to you all for like ever, for hours and hours. But I know we've got to end soon. So what I'd like first is for each of you, if you have any closing comments, and also... How can our listeners reach you? If they want to reach you, how can they reach you? So, Charmaine, one last, one last sentence, and also how can people reach you? Well, the one last sentence is, it is vitally essential to have control of your narrative. Your narrative is your power. Your narrative is what allows you to be able to be fully present in the world and show all of who you are, regardless of who you are and where you are in the world. That is core. And how you can reach me is, of course, my website, mcclarygroup.com. And uh, I have these six principles that I really believe in that are important. One is that as a leader, our aspiring leader is to communicate your vision. Like what is that vision that you see? And to speak in headlines. So the people really are seduced by the eye and the ear of, of what you say. And that your three must make points. Why should I listen? What's in it for you? And what do you want me to do about it? Those are the three questions that every audience asks. And to create witnesses to your hard work. Again, hard work without a witness is simply hard work. And don't audition for the part. You've already got it. Be in it fully and embrace that and embody your message, making sure you're walking, talking, and acting the part. Okay. Uh, How do you spell your name, Charmaine, so people get that website right? Charmaine. So the McClary Group, that's M-C-C-L-A-R-I-E group, G-R-O-U-P dot com. Okay. www.mcclarygroup.com. And I'm here in Los Angeles, but I always say that really I'm on an airplane because I travel the globe. So they can reach you from anywhere. Yes. Okay, David. And thank you so much for allowing me to participate. Well, thank you. I'm going to thank you again, David. Yeah, so, so very quickly, I would just say, uh, so in this, in this work, in this diversity space, we spend a lot of time, rightfully so, getting people to understand it's not just about your differences. It's also about your similarities, right? So how do we hone in on those, those things that we share in common? And in many cases, it's our basic humanity, quite frankly. But I think it's also like to deal with and acknowledge our differences. You know, again, if we're talking about race, if you identify as a, you know, along any ethnic or racial group, don't be afraid to own that. It kind of ties into what Charmaine said about shaping your narrative, perspective to bring to the table. You have something of value to bring to the table. You don't have to always lead with, you know, hey, I'm, the, I'm representing the, the black delegation today. Lead with that, 
but also don't be afraid to, to tap into the value of that. So that that's the uh, the, the the piece of uh, advice I will leave folks with. Um, contacting me, I mean, I'm out on LinkedIn. It's uh, last name is spelled K C C A S E Y. So you can find me on LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is the letter K, the letter C, then diversity. So it's K C Diversity, and you can also uh, find me at DavidKCDiversity.com. And I love following you on Twitter. So everybody needs to follow David on Twitter because he's got some really cool tweets. And I, I really want to thank you both again for being on the show. It's been wonderful. I look forward to having you both on again. And this is to everybody. This is Sima the Inclusionist on Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People signing off. If you like what you heard today and want to hear more, please go to race www.raceconvo, convo like conversation, raceconvo.com. And if you really, really like what you heard today, then I would like you to share the link to raceconvo.com or on iTunes or any other platform with all your colleagues, friends, family, and anybody else you know in the world. And if you would like to see us continue, because we want to continue, we think this is really important. If you really want to see us bring people together across differences to create comfortable conversations on race, then please go to www.raceconvo.com and go to our GoFundMe page and help us sustain this program. You could leave a small donation or even a big donation. So, Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, signing off. Until next time. Rapes, like it's smuggers, making papers with all my hustlers, hitting the states with all my brothers. It's the skunk train, and I'm nook, and I'm the conductor. Skunk train, skunk train. All aboard, all aboard. Skunk train, skunk train. All aboard, all aboard. I love my greens in the morning. I love my greens at night. And if you love your greens just like I do, the skunk train will take you for a ride. Skunk train. Smell like diesel, not some perp. I just got it from my people. Damn, back feel heavy. That's all good, leaning up the Chevy. Shed had the shit banging on some threes. Cause a brother like me don't fuck with nothing but heavy peas. Got them packs for all the max. Sit back, relax. Rack these stacks, stack these racks. Do it right. We gon' be in it all damn night. Yeah, I spent my life grinding and shining. Rhyming, reclining, designing one lining. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches. Hitting switches, going racks to riches. Got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio 
studio smelling like purple. Got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. Smoking on blends I can't even pronounce. Two hundred dollars probably get you an ounce. Yeah, I got the Swiss bank accounts and more bounce for my bounce, bounce, bounce. Mm, ah, here we go. Did he die? Where does I lie? Bustin' with a flow, hitting that drove, get me so high. Feel like an eagle when I'm up in the sky. Coming back to the tarmac. Back in the days it was a carjack. How about that? Nowadays I spit raps, bust on these cats who don't know about the max. Ooh, yeah, I'm on the scene, laying low, so fresh, so clean. Smoking on some gangster greens, purple cream from the 415. It's the cannabis king. Got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. I got the whole studio smelling like purple. Got the whole studio smelling. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio has the best men the Internet Ocean has to offer you. That. <laughs> Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up a excellent mix of jazz latin gospel hip-hop and traditional folk ballads great stuff check it out labor and love is every saturday 10 a.m to 12 p.m serve somebody Hello there, 
my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off, for <laughs> it's in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen Summer Cottage on the Mountain Ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat. Black. Plastic. Vinyl, records, round, played, mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scott Walker. Amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And... Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're... 
chosen by uh, Here's you? his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Comedy fans, don't miss Comedy Day Sunday, September 16th at Robin Williams Meadow in Golden Gate Park. Noon till 5. It's free! You'll see 44 or more comedians. 44 comedians. Five hours. That's over eight and a half comedians an hour. That's silly. Ever see a half a comedian? Yes, a half wit. Not funny, but Comedy Day will be a guaranteed laugh a minute. Let's see, a laugh a minute times five hours. That's 300 jokes. That's a lot of jokes, folks. <laughs> So why are these people laughing? I don't know. Maybe because they know Comedy Day will be better than the shoelaces of Madagascar exhibit. Better than the paperweight wares of the world convention. Better even than the alien sheep herding contest. And speaking of herding, heard any good ones lately? Okay, not funny again, but Comedy Day will be. Don't miss punchlines like these. A frog in a blender. In your hat. To keep his pants up. Comedy Day is worth the price of a mission because it's free. Nothing to buy. No operators waiting for your call. Void. We're prohibited by law. Comedy Day. Sunday, September 16th at Robin Williams. Williams Meadow in Golden Gate Park. It's free. Visit ComedyDay.org for complete details. Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsidai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event. Now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Oh, 
in San Francisco. Hey. Uh, let's see what we got. We're going to do pre-Columbia.
Yeah, it's the feelies. <clears throat> the feelies. <laughs> uh, for a while, is that called? Um, and it's off the um, Only Life record. Uh, they had another one, I think, before that. Um, God, I can't think of it. But that was good. I had that one and lost it somewhere. Lost it somewhere. Uh, we're going back to the basement. This is the Flesh Hammers. Can I tell you a little bit about them? Uh, let me see if I can get this and enlarge it. I brought these glasses with, and they seem to be kind of ineffective. <laughs> oh, I'm, they're doing something, but... Um, uh, let me tell you about the artist. Uh, the Flesh Hammers are a controversial and musically brilliant outfit who have succeeded in creating a sound all their own. The band was formed in 2003 in Reno, Nevada, Reno, Nevada but is now based in the San Francisco Bay Area. The that Okay, we're, um, the name of the song is called Psycho Woman. And I'm, uh, all right, that's turned up. I'm touching... Touching that. Come on. All right. The circle with the, you know, with the dot, the little gap that rotates. Here we go.
remind you of someone you used to care about. Oh, but that was long ago. Now tell me, do you really think I'd fall for that old line? I was not born just yesterday. Besides, I never taught the strangers in their way. Tom Waits off the um, foreign affairs record uh, with real tiny writing. Uh, I'm not sure uh, uh, the name of that song. <laughs> you can guess or uh, find out. We're going back to the basement. This is Philip Peters. Philip Peters. Um, if you dig this, go on uh, Bandcamp and look for it. I'm going to try to get any some more information off this thing. Um, uh, um, this is Welcome to the Quiet Room uh, by by Quiet Room. I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not sure. Hold on. Let me uh, read this. So, Philip Peters, singer, songwriter, recording artist. Welcome to the Quiet Room. So, I guess that is the name of the record by Quiet Room. So, I guess that's what Philip Peters's uh, alter ego might be. Quiet Room. 
And uh, this is, God, can I make this bigger? Carbon Dioxide Girl. And see you guys up. And if you dig this, um, look for Philip Peters Bandcamp. That's where there's that's where you find it. The circles are going in a circle, and the pause thing came back. That's always a good sign. But you know, uh, usually it's. Uh, here we go.
Yeah, that's off my Latin Hurricane record. Um, these are the uh, uh, Los Cinco Caballeros, <laughs> and that was uh, Limpia Botas. And we're going back to the basement. This is uh, Eric Ammerman. If you dig this, you can find it on Bandcamp. This is off uh, the Low Trees EP, and this song is called Blinds. Uh, Eric Ammerman and let's see we got that and that's up that's the pause everything's in place just like
in my soul In the pain of my mother Will not let me go Sky to refine the purest of kings, and even though I know this fire brings me pain, even so, and just the same, make it rain, make it rain down, Lord.
Yeah, it's Jan and Dean and the wrecking crew, no doubts. Um, I got to drive. <laughs> Man, that's pretty bad, huh? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They got some good songs, and I'm sure they're, you know, it was like that. But that one, they were uh, paying bills with that song, definitely. All right, uh, we're going back to the basement. This is Manly Martian. Oh, shit. Hold on. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, I mean to curse uh, when I, I like to reserve the cursing for, you know, making a point about something. All right, I'm, I'm kind of getting myself situated. I got these glasses on. They're great for kind of looking, uh, looking around, but they're not. Uh, One. Okay, so that's the two again. And so right now, they switched three and four. And because I just brought up and there's nothing coming out of this and there's oh looking on there yeah so they okay. switched them again so I'm will be uh, comprised of eight tracks and without vocals and it will feature eight dot 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 read more um, you guys uh, I can't if I get off this page I may never be able to get back um, this song is called Albatross if you dig this look for Manly Martian on Reverb Nation Albatross, see so we can turn that up there. The dot is uh, getting chased around in a circle. This dog chasing its tail, one, whatever it's called. I don't know, I'm sure there's a name for that one, but it assures me that something is uh, happening. It has recognized that I did request the song. Um, oh, don't do that. So I got this thing, I just updated the um, operating system on this. And here we go. And um, it keeps asking me for uh, Apple ID, and I bought this thing used, and I don't know what it is. Thank you. 
I told you I'm all through with you But just about the time I start to tell you I start feeling blue And just about then I lose my nerve And wait another day or two Cause just about the time I think it's over I start missing you
Yeah, it's Errol Smith, sick as a dog off of uh, rocks. <laughs> That's right. Um, what did we had some before that, too. Um, there's some uh, Johnny Cash in there off of uh, really early uh, Sun Records stuff. Um, and then I got this record. It's um, uh, 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 Front R O T R, and it's it's oh, I forget what they oh Rodney on the Rock, um, who is a big promoter of um, like an L A punk bands back in the day, and that was um, what was that Power? No, it was called uh, Wild. Wild by, uh, uh, I forget. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, we're going back to the basement. This is Brett Allen Gregory. And this is uh, Tales of the, of the Bed Yam. Uh, that's the name of the record. And uh, hold on a second. Um, um I think we're going to do this song. This is Country Girl. Touching that. Gregory. Wait. Uh, Brett Allen Gregory, if you dig this. Bandcamp. Uh, Country Girl. Um, yeah, he's uh, out of um, Northern California. Livermore. I know where that is. Pause button's there. It's waiting. I close my eyes. But I can't sleep Look what your love's done to me I know you wanna take your sweet time A pretty girl, I'm about to lose my mind Hey man, the morning night One little kiss and I made my mind Your heart can run, but it can't hide The country girl got to be mine Well, I'm getting restless and I can't eat just what I need Now this road to end double time My heart ain't stopping for no stop sign You hear me under a moonlit night One little kiss and a bit of my mind Your heart can run but it can't hide it Comes a girl got to be mine Well everything about I just feel so Kissing a bit of my mind 